Welcome to the Offshore Accountant Podcast. I'm Nick Sinclair and this is the go-to podcast if you're an accountant and looking to set up and build a high-performing offshore team for your accounting firm. Here you can learn how to complement your local efforts, grow capacity and deliver more to clients than ever before. Hear from experts who have done it already. Let's go. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Brad Cowley, Principal Owner at Ignite Accounting and Financial Services based out of Sydney, Australia. Brad provides some awesome tips on how you should engage your staff so that they are empowered and become motivated to go above and beyond and deliver high quality work. With compliance work and cross-border tax advice as their client focus, Ignite only takes on clients on a full service basis because they believe it helps them build better quality solutions. Firms looking to scale and improve capacity will definitely learn a lot from the way that Brad manages his offshore team, which he treats as part of their business that's just in another location. Listen to the episode now. Hi, I'm Brad from Ignite Accounting. You're listening to the Offshore Accounting Podcast. Brad, give us an overview of your team structure, both your local team and your global team. How long have you been going? And tell us a little bit about your business. Yeah, look, uh, Nick, we've been um, in Manly for about seven years um, as a practice. Um, my background prior to that was actually corporate, so I was running um, medium-sized business finance teams as a CFO for around 20 years. Started up a practice in uh, Manly in, uh, in seven, seven years ago, and currently we have um, myself, a senior accountant, and an accountant, and they've been with me. The accountant's been with me for three years and the senior for one year. In terms of the focus for the team here, it's predominantly uh, client tax planning. Um, we do all the business advice um, and the ta- technical tax aspects out of the Sydney office. And the focus um, that we have predominantly is um, around wealth. So we are um, licensed um, financial planners and mortgage brokers. We use those licensing arrangements to help us provide more holistic conversations and discussions with clients. And then we bring in the experts around um, partnering with us to create that wealth creation focus on the client around investment structures, um, around entity structures and tax, which we, we manage, um, and also around um, financing um, structures and best leveraging um, the lowest rate options we can in the marketplace to meet their requirements. From, from a uh, Manila point of view, we've got um, currently two accountants over there, both are around 10 years experience, and we have one assistant accountant so the team's um, about four years old, and um, we're just about to add a fourth team member at the moment, which will be at a counter level. And the focus there is compliance preparation and client support. So they uh, will be pretty busy from the 1st of July through to the end of the year. So that will be their core focus to prepare company trust returns, preparation of accounts, batch returns, monthly accounts for clients. So their focus is on the, um, the compliance steps in that area. Excellent. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but obviously you've been on this journey now for coming up to four years, so you are an early adopter in the Australian market with this. But before we get into, I suppose, more about your story with um, offshoring, does your business have a niche market or are you more of a generals type of firm? I mean, you've, you've spoken about obviously doing financial planning and mortgage broking and, and your wealth focus, but what type of client do you deal with? Do you have a niche client or do you just deal with any type of client? The niche um, predominantly is small business advice, and, and the reason I like the area is because of the um, the small business tax concession arrangements that are in place. 
obviously we can do a lot of work with clients and create some good outcomes. So it seems to be, um, for me, a more enjoyable area to be in. We have a lot more tools and, and tax concessions to work with smaller businesses to create outcomes. So it's it's a nice area to be in. So substantially, um, most of our clients are under 10 million in turnover. That's probably about 40% of the business and um, the other 40% is cross-border tax advice. So we do a lot of um, tax planning and assistance with people leaving Australia, people overseas that didn't plan their exit properly and they want to clean up their affairs. Um, it might be an Australian over in the US for 10 years wanting to return. So how do we repatriate pension, um, pension balances from the US back to Australia and likewise with the UK? So we do a lot of cross-border work as well. So predominantly, um, they're the core niche areas and we also only deal with clients on a full service basis. So we provide all the bookkeeping, compliance, tax and so on. The reason for that focus is um, so we can better control the quality for our clients and controlling the monthly accounts and the, um, the quarterly compliance really just brings us up to the end of the year with not too much to do for the clients when we're preparing the, the company accounts and the returns. So the profitability aspect from that structure for us is a lot higher. So we tend to get a bigger return on investment and the quality tends to be a lot higher. So that's predominantly what our core focus is. Yeah, I love that focus of really fencing the client in and providing them all the services in-house. Just a, a follow-up question to that. How does that work? Does that mean your work, your firm's working with a smaller number of clients but doing a lot more for them? Or are you still doing high volumes of clients but just doing the whole process as well? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, something which um, kind of ran away from me a little bit was we we're up to about 600 clients at the moment and our team's not that big, but we're able to manage that volume through automation technology. So I consider the firm to be a technology company as well as a, um, a public practice. And the overall goal though is to reduce um, that 600 down to 400, down to 300. So at the moment, I'm trying to um, reduce the the client count and reduce the volume aspects to it um, and further expand on the um, quality of delivery, quality of advice and the quality of clients. So that's um, something that we're working on also at the moment. It's, it's funny that you you get to a point and you go, I've got too many clients, I've got to reduce them. It's, it's absolutely um, where I'm trying to head over the next two to three years. So that niche is um, going to be honed more on, on cross-border and the small business area and the whole, whole business service area. It'll be more uh, retainers and um, less um, individual tax returns and those peripheral things or up services that um, don't really provide a high margin or a high return. So um, that'll be the aim to halve the client count over the coming years. Yeah, excellent. So, Brad, tell us a little bit about your story of setting up your offshore team. What were your motivations behind doing this um, versus obviously the other priorities in, in your firm? Yes, and I actually have been using outsourcing for about six or seven years now, and it's, I started off using um, some services out of Vietnam. A lot of the other services are just like big call centres. You go in there and you, um, you throw your work in, and it spits out the result at the end. Um, it uses um, their process and procedures, their, their work papers, their approach. Um, you get any staff member, and the quality can be quite varied. So I suppose um, I always like the idea of having a more variable type cost structure where you could, if you had bottlenecks, you could turn the, um, the resource on. Um, and if you had a, a slow month, you could turn it off. Now that, that was good in theory, but the quality wasn't there. I was approached, I suppose, um, by Toa about four years ago. And it was at the same time where I was looking at the client 
um, in the, the, the staff ownership model um, from an out, outsourced perspective with a lower cost that um, I wouldn't have to turn off. I could keep maintaining those resources because of the pricing arrangement. And that allowed me to um, then enter a staff ownership model and also maintain those staff and the quality that I needed to, to maintain. So the idea was to um, improve quality, but under a, um, an approach where the cost wouldn't be too high to negate the ability for me to make a margin out of the work or the fees charged to the client. It's been an interesting trend that we certainly see a lot. We get a, a lot of new clients that are coming from that model, in particular from um, India and, and Vietnam, where the outsource model, where it, it is a great variable expense, you can send the work, they do it, they send it back. But the detriment to that is the more successful that firm is, the lower quality work they normally put out. And it's not a sustainable model to be able to scale and grow quickly. So the more successful they are, the bigger detriment it is to their clients around that. So we've certainly seen a huge amount of traffic coming from India and Vietnam over the last four to five years, and it's probably increasing now as opposed to decreasing. So it's really interesting some of the points you raised there around the differences between the models and, and ultimately being able to control having your own team. So Brad, when you made the decision to go down and build your own global team that you controlled obviously and they were a full-time resource for you. How did you go about setting up? How did you um, firstly find us as a partner, the onboarding process and how long did it take to get it up and running and, and shifting from that model where you sent the work there and got it back to, to now having a global team that's you know, ultimately almost the same size as your Australian team? Mm, it's funny because um, I was using Vietnam at the time and I was looking for a um, an alternative option, um, and Toa found me, so I got cold called. So the sales sales process works. Um, <laughs> That's that a call. Good thing. <laughs> yeah, it works. And um, I got a call and introduction to um, what Toa was actually offering. I hadn't heard heard of um, Toa at that point. And what I did is at that point I was on I was subscribing to GPS Wealth, um, GPS Change, sorry, and I just posted a few questions on there and a, a bunch of people stuck their head up and said, well, we use Tyra at the moment. Happy to have a talk to you about it. So the reference checking process, I suppose, was through just forums and, and then having phone calls with existing clients of Tyra. Um So that's how I did my um, reference checking and um, research around, you know, how to onboard new staff, what are the problems, what are the things you need to consider. And I suppose the it's quite amazing, even though I was using Vietnam, I still have this barrier to entry, this mental block that what do I do, how do I take that next step? And um, it's just good talking to people about how they do it because um, most people think it's completely different to how they run their existing business. But when you get through it, it's just like having a staff member in your own office. Um, you approach it the same way. So I started off with one staff member to um, to see how it goes, tip my toe in the water, and um, that started quite well. I learned a lot. I learned um, the cultural aspects of the Filipinos versus the Australians. Um, at the end of the day, there's not a huge amount of difference, but there is some subtle differences which are important to be aware of, like um, their maturity, um, the responsibilities that they take for, from a family point of view about being the breadwinner, um, you know, there's, there's just a different approach to the youth that we have here in Australia. So it's, it's a little bit refreshing, but also um, the engagement needs to be quite quite high from the beginning in terms of how you bring them on and how you um, support them on a regular basis. So, you know, doing that remotely, you get used to how to do that. So you need to develop ways to, 
to efficiently and effectively communicate and manage that team member from a, from the other side of the globe. Um, it doesn't become hard in the end, but I suppose your first person is always a challenge and how to get past that mental block was, um, was, was the hard bit. After that, it's been fine. So as I said before, I'm up to three members and we're about to put a fourth on and everything's going really well. Um, every time I put someone else on, I learn more. So it's just been a consistent learning process um, and um, I no longer use Vietnam. So I'm 100% focused on the ownership model and uh, the Tower team. Yeah, some, there's multiple points in there that, that are absolutely um, great takeaways for anyone listening. And that's one of the reasons why we even created this podcast was that a lot of the things, uh, there's a lot of mental blocks that new clients have around just how's it going to work, which is, you know, the aim of this podcast is to be able to educate people going through that process that it is really just a process and a learning curve. So, Brad, for someone looking to set up an offshore team, what advice would you give them to, to help them move as quick as possible? What would be the three most critical things that you would spend your time on? Um, I would first, um, I'd first have a think about um, what it is that you, you want to achieve out of your offshore team. And I, I suppose the, the important part around that is, is if you want someone just to do basic processing or if you want someone to be a contributing um, an accountant in the team actually contributing to the day-to-day -day, um, completion of high-level work, you need to kind of work out where you want that role to sit. The team that, I, that I've got do everything from a menial task to high-level um, um, tax advice and research. So they're, they're very capable people and I suppose the, the first step um, that I would say would be isolate what kind of person you want and then ensure that you've got good, well-rounded process and procedures um, developed to, to help the person on board. And if you haven't got process and procedures that are, that are good, because it does take a long time to develop those, start with um, income tax returns, individual um, tax returns, and focus them on that area. Give them a vision of the next 12 months where you want to take them as an individual um, and um, develop them through that path of um, moving them from ITRs to accounts to BAS returns to IAS returns. So you can actually then step them through that process slowly, develop them up, build their um, their experience, their understanding and knowledge in the Australian tax system, and just take them on a journey where you can control the um, the education process without it becoming an inconvenience in your day-to-day -day, um, management of the team member. And um, also leverage um, cloud-based technology as much as you can to close the gap between the um, offshore team member and the uh, local team. So it's, it's just about process of procedures and technology, in my view, um, and how you bring that person in and manage them daily. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. So, Brad, if you had a word or a phrase to describe the value that your offshore team provides to your business, what would it be? I've got two. So, um, look, I've got – I see the team as enabling and I see that the, the team is very mature. It's, 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 it's funny to, like um, – once the team's up and running, they they do cross-train. They teach each other. They huddle um, if they're trying to work out something. If someone's talking about an area the other person doesn't know, they kind of roll over and on their chair and start listening in. So um, from their point of view, they're um, very attentive um, in terms of um, enabling the work that you give them. The high level of maturity allows them to... Um, to, to go and have a look at the, the solutions that might be available before they come back and ask the question. So you provide them with all the materials and the educational materials you can. They self-educate, which I'm finding they 90% of the time, um, I don't get a question, I get the, the output 
Um, they've gone through the procedures, they've gone through the education materials, they've then done their own research and they've come back with a product. So they give it a go. And generally, and you know, sometimes you have to change things and fix things, but um, after a while, the, the product becomes um, pretty much close to 100% each time. So from a maturity point of view, they're very good and very aware that you know, quality is important. Um, responsibility of delivering their jobs on time is very high. So um, it, it comes back to, unfortunately, um, the Filipino staff that I've got, in some, st- in some sense, um, I rate more highly than um, the Australian youth at a university that I've interview- interviewed because of their view on and their importance on looking after their family, earning a good wage and, you know, doing well in their job. So it's been a very refreshing thing to have in the business. The maturity has been quite interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point and, and that's where we see a lot of our clients that have got their teams up and running. When they're comparing that to an Australian team, the offshore team or the global team normally is more productive. And I think part of that comes back to the environment um, that they work in in the Philippines. I think part of that is also um, the Philippine culture and work ethic and and value that they have in a role. Um, I remember when I had my firm five years ago now, I was interviewing um, junior financial planners and accountants, and one of the first questions they were asked is, when can I get equity? Um, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's why don't you, you know, work your way up first, champ, like, but, you know, it's just, it is, that's one of the, the great cultural benefits of the Filipinos is their work ethic. So we're going to talk about some of the perceptions of offshoring and, and you've been doing it for a long time now, or what's considered a long time in the Australian market anyway, um, in the global market. But what are some of the perceptions um, offshoring that you've heard? Um, what are the main things that you've heard and what surprised you the most by actually um, going down this path and doing it? Yeah, so I've heard a lot of negative um, comments um, over the years. and I've, I've, I actually think those negative comments might be focused on the Indian and the Vietnam call centre approach because um, the problems that um, most people were having was you'd send a job off and you'd get more questions to answer than it would take you to actually do the job yourself. And people would turn around and say, well, why is it worth even having it? Like it's um, it's not producing a benefit to the business. And the issue with all that was um, because the staff didn't know your business, um, they've never worked on your business before, all that client, there's no knowledge, there's no consistency of, of knowledge or work paper development within the um, within the business to actually refer to and build on. So I can understand if people are using um, Vietnam and India why they would have some negative comments. I, I think um, if, if they haven't experienced um, the staff ownership model, they they don't really understand the opportunities out there because um, the, you can't compare the two. They're completely different. And um, I think um, with the uh, the toll model, that the experience I've got is they are, you know, my team within my business. Um, one of the team members is going to a wedding in Australia in September and he's going to potentially come here and um, for a couple of weeks to work here for two weeks before he heads back. So, you know, they they come here every year. We go over there every year. Um, every six months we have, you know, off-sites where we go as a team. Um, if they're travelling, they come here and work for a week or two. Um, so it's, it's just different. They, they are more or less a a staff member of your business, they're just in another office. So you could just say, well, if you've got two offices in Australia, in Melbourne and Sydney, it's just the same thing. I, I can't see the difference. And um, I suppose um, some of those perceptions of offshoring are still all legacy um, experiences from the, um, the, the call centre model. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think a big part of that is is that the outsourcing model where you send your work and get it done was what the offshoring and outsourcing model was for many years. 
and there was no model like the way that we do it. So people's perception is that they've heard, you know, or experienced where they've sent a job, the quality was no good, so they don't want to do outsourcing to this type of model is completely different. So some really good points raised there. So Brad, the year ahead, what is your plan for your offshore team? How do you plan to keep growing your team, their capability, and ultimately their performance um, for your firm? Yeah, so that's um, so it's consistent. So a consistent challenge that I suppose every practice has got. Um, so the next six months is um, we've we've just spent last week a, a week in Manila, hence um, my cold, my head cold that I got on the way back, and um, the the hot and the cold. But um, so we spent a week there doing our six monthly review of procedures, getting ready for the first of July. The team um, um, pair up into into groups. Um, and focus on developing and refining specific areas of process and procedures. So we work through, you know, what worked, what didn't, what can we change, what needs to be better, and we do that every six months. So those procedures are now just being, final drafts are going in place, and uh, next week we're rolling those across um, our workflow, which is zero practice, so that'll be plugged into job-specific workflow, um, and then the team will engage those procedure steps and template materials to complete specific tasks. So. We'll then be running that um, out next week um, as we go into compliance season. And within um, probably about six weeks, we'll start planning for the next team meeting, which we're thinking about doing in Australia uh, end of January. So we're gonna get the team over here. That's generally a lot of it's team building. So we get the team out, go for a surf, go for a snorkel, um, go out to dinner, um, do a fair bit of training. Again, we a couple of months leading up to that, we, we pick teams. And we have a look at refining specific areas of um, of workflow that aren't as good as they could be, um, and we work at, work out how as a team we're going to improve that. So again, um, when I say that the offshore team is um, is just another extension of the office, um, the towel team, you know, pair with a a, a local team member in Manly, um, and they present. So the the Toa, uh, Filipino members present bring their work to the table, take you through what they think needs to be done. They own the process. Obviously, um, we have final, a final say on what goes into play at the end, but um, you know, in terms of what they contribute, it's, it's high quality. So they own it, they are passionate about it, and then they become a power user for the team to go to. So manly team members go to the top person who's a, a, a power user for that particular area for any guidance or advice if there's a problem. So the team works on a flat structure because we're small enough to do so, but it's very interactive, it's very engaging, um, and, and the focus is to build the team environment, the excitement and the drive as we focus from each six-month milestone. So that's, that's the next six months. They've also got KPIs, which they've been given last week across the whole team. So they've got a six-month development pipeline, which we're also running individually to um, build each team member to that next stage of their personal and professional development. Yeah, and I think you've made some really key points there. And I congratulate you and, and why you're making the success is because you are treating it as another office for your business. You go there regularly, your team come to Australia regularly, you're working on projects, you, you're treating it as one business, just two, two offices and two locations, which I think for anyone listening that isn't currently building a team, you need to take that approach. It's not an outsource staff where you just send work and get it back. It really is part of your business. It's just a new office. 
So Brad, you mentioned earlier how you've got 600 clients now. Your, your goal over the next two to three years is obviously reducing that down to, to 300. Mm. How do you see the growth of your offshore team um, as well as your local team with obviously reducing your client numbers and the structure within the business um, for what you're going to deliver to them? Yeah, so I'll give you a really good example, and this is how well it's working at the moment. I've, I've got um, Rochelle, who's based in the TOA, um, office in Manila. She's um, my onboard manager at the moment. So we've worked together to um, build standard templates for bringing on larger clients. So say you've got high value retainer clients where you're providing full service, um, you know, across all facets of um, their internal finance function. What what she's been doing is, is helping me develop those process procedures, those templates. We've then replicated those across new clients further refine those procedures and then she trains up staff members and plugs them into a client and then becomes that client manager. So at the moment, um, Rochelle's managing one of the um, the Sydney um, accountants to onboard her um, as um, the staff member for one of the um, recent clients we've just onboarded under that model. So, you know, that, that gives you a bit of an idea about how the, um, the, the TOA team is supporting it. You've got the other team members jumping up and down saying, can I be next, can I be next? And I'm going, this is ridiculous. People are actually knocking on my door saying, can I, can I be the next person? Because um, everyone's excited and motivated about <laughs> what we're doing, which is bizarre. Normally you have people um, trying to get out the door at five o'clock and, and not being keen. But the team are very excited. They're very um, engaged and they, they like what we're trying to do as a business. So I think culturally, you know, everyone's very plugged in and because the team in Tower is actually having a high level involvement in the, the success of the business. The other team members see it, they feed off it and they want to be a part of it. So it just drags them all in. So um, that kind of approach is, you know, a game changer for, for how this practice here in Sydney actually works. If I just stuck them in there doing forms and just filling out forms every day, it wouldn't, I might as well get a, an EA in Sydney or an admin person in the Sydney offices to do that because it's not going to work. So having that high level engagement has them pushing me. So they're managing up to me now. They're pushing me along. They're um, pushing the team. And they're setting, setting an example for Australian workers in terms of this is how you've been motivated and engaged in your business. Because their work ethic is higher than Australian work ethic, yeah. which is great. Some interesting points there. So following on from that, what are some recommendations that you have on some of the top things that you would recommend someone um, could do to manage a new offshore team? What would be three things that you would recommend anyone that's new to this process really focuses their time on when managing a new offshore team? Yeah, look, um, I think investing the time is um, absolutely crucial. There is going to be trust um, challenges initially um, as you start a new team up. The first member will be worried about their job security. You know, the remuneration, the wages are a lot lower in the Philippines. The, the ability to find good paying jobs is harder um, in the Philippines. And also um, families do rely on the golden child, so to speak, to, to get out there and, and um, earn the big bucks and help the family out. So they want trust. They want... Um, to know that they can trust you and be open and, and speak freely without being ridiculed or um, potentially losing their job. So you've got to invest the time, you've got to spend time with them face to face, you've got to develop that relationship and that trust. Um, and that's crucial from the outset. You know, from day one, you need to be there with them and onboarding them. 
providing clear guidance, um, you know, as I said before, around good processes and procedures and a well-defined workflow that um, is clear. They've been trained on it. They know exactly what to expect and how to approach their daily jobs. And also setting motivation, um, motivated challenges, setting goals um, and rewarding success. So, you know, what we do every week, if someone does a good job, we, we praise what they do. If, if something could be better, we, we look at training in terms of how to give them the tools to enable them to um, be rewarded. So it, it's, it's building their, them up to succeed as opposed to um, not providing them with the tools or the, um, the, the training to be able to succeed. So it's trust, it's clear guidance and setting clear goals and rewarding success in my view. Yeah, some great points there, particularly around um, the rewarding or, or showing recognition. And I think that's a big thing for Filipinos is they love to, to re receive the recognition and it, it really lifts them up, which is which is a great thing. And, and then equally, if they're not doing something right, most of the time we say to firms, it's really a training issue. It's not a competency issue. It's that they haven't clearly been shown how to do it or, or they're the process is lacking somewhere. So it really is an opportunity to train as opposed to it being a negative thing, which typically in Australia or the US, when you've got your local team, it's really around, well, that's a negative thing, but no, it's it's a training or process issue typically. So Brad, how do you actually gauge the success of your offshore team? What KPIs or measures do you put in place to be able to validate their success? Is it similar to your local team or, or how do you measure that? Yeah, look, it's the same thing. Um, I suppose I just just to give everyone a bit of a, an idea about how we structure our fees, it's all fixed fee. We do sometimes um, charge out of scope, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, so we don't have timesheets and productivity is in direct timesheet comparisons against what we expect. I suppose um, what I do focus on is I do have my own um, profit and loss by staff member for Australia and over in Manila team, so I can see what type of return on investment I'm getting. So I, I very much use that as a, um, a behind the scenes gauge, but I don't wave that in front of the team and I don't set specific conversion ratios per team member. And I look at a lot of colleagues, I suppose it's because of my corporate background, but a lot of colleagues think I'm nuts in terms of how I approach this. But um, the, KPIs, the KPIs that I focus on is um, training, consistent training and performance feedback it's setting expectations around jobs and being very specific about the outcomes that are required, um, making sure the team environment is fun and motivating. So creating excitement, drive, having the team highly engaged and being very quick to provide them feedback on how they should do things differently, how they should improve what they're doing. Should they be quicker at what the jobs are that they're doing? We provide guidance in terms of how long a job should take. Um, and we, we can through zero practice um, monitor actual time versus um, estimated time. So we can gauge that, but it's more about the quality of the product. And if jobs are taking too long, are we charging too little or are we um, needing to provide further training to the staff member? So look, I do focus on ratios um, and to give everyone a bit of an idea about what we're getting, if it's of relevance, um, the around about six times wages to fee generation out of Manila and we get about three um, in Sydney. So we get twice the conversion. The wages are obviously lower, but um, we get um, twice the conversion. From my point of view, that type of conversion is pretty high. And if we're maintaining high levels of quality, 
um, and we can have a very engaged and focused team. Um, generally, I focus on those areas because they flow through to productivity and they flow through to increased output because the team want to do it. Um, they're able to do it and they can drive it. There's some great advice there and, you know, you're getting 3% out or three times, sorry, out of your local team. When I speak at events around the globe, most of the time firms are struggling to get, you know, two times. Some firms are only getting one. So the fact that you're getting three locally and six with your global team is, you know, big, you know, positive for your firm and the way that you run it and the process and systems you have in place because I know that a lot of firms really struggle with that side of it. So, Brad, I'm going to pivot a little bit away now and talk more about your clients. So how has having a global team and an offshore team benefited your clients? Um, I, I suppose the, um, the the biggest benefit for the clients is increased um, quality. In terms of the, um, the the work paper preparation we do, it's it's extremely detailed and you know, we're always focusing on further um, improvements to quality. So I don't think I could provide this level of quality if I was using um, an Australian, a full, full, fully Australian workforce because um, the cost base would be too high. We wouldn't be able to spend the amount of time we do on um, really producing some, some quality work in the background. So my, my view is the clients are getting higher quality. They're getting better product. They're getting quicker product. And that's that's something which... Um, I, I certainly couldn't achieve with a 100% Australian-based team. Yeah, it's a great outcome. So we're going to talk a little bit more about yourself now. So how has having an offshore team contributed to giving you more time personally? Has it given you more work-life balance back? Um, and what's it done for, I suppose, your team locally as well? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting point. So um, unfortunately, it um, hasn't given me work-life balance today. It's, it's, it's allowed my business to grow at, at around 40, 50% per annum. So we've just seen solid, um, growth. solid growth, yeah. It's been going through the roof. And I suppose with, within that, you get some roof raff clients, you get some Ds that pop in that um, you missed on the initial interview process. So I, I suppose um, at the moment, the growth has been solid. And now because the process and procedures in the background are becoming very mature, the system and the environment is developing to a point where it is quite stable and mature and very effective from a cloud point of view, that um, it, it's now time to start focusing on work-life work balance. Um, the team at Manila is now highly trained and, and competent. So any new team members I bring on, um, they will be trained by the team in the Manila team. So, um, you know, they'll be cross-training. So from that point of view, all the, um, the growing pain around not having those things in place won't be there anymore and as we um, slow down the onboarding of new clients that look at for more premium high value clients that um, that work-life balance will um, improve a lot. I'm hoping by the end of the year I can just sit back and look at my control panel and steer the business as opposed to getting my hands too dirty going forward but it's been um, pretty pretty involved up until now um, and that's tapering off now so um, the mineral team is certainly going to enable that because of their also adherence to process and procedures, a lot more so than Australian um, um, workers. Um, I know that the quality that comes out from the product will be the same every time, or it'll be as per the procedures that are set. So that that's gonna give me work-life work balance. If I had 100% Australian staff, I'd be looking for deviations from process and, and what hasn't been done, or what hasn't been checked off in the, um, the final preparation. So, I think that's going to be a positive um, step for me over the next six months to 
get back into more family life, more more um, you know sports, and living the the engine room of the business, predominantly being the Manil team, just carrying the day to day forward with um, little disruption issue. Client complaints won't be there because the quality's high. So it'll it'll provide a low noise environment and a high quality environment with work life balance. So I'm looking forward to that. It's an interesting point because I ask this question obviously to everyone that I interview um, on a weekly basis and the majority of time it's the exact same thing is that this actually hasn't provided a huge amount of work-life balance now because it's enabled us to deal with capacity and grow. So the growth of the firm is an offset against obviously that work-life balance but in saying that pretty much all of our clients want to know before the podcast started you mentioned that you're actually going off in for for Australian clients you'll understand but for US and the rest of the world you're actually leaving on you're going to go on a holiday at the start of the tax season which starts in a in a couple of weeks time so do you just talk a little bit more around how you feel comfortable in actually going away when the busy period technically is just about to start yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Because normally I'd be um, gearing myself up to hit the ground running, but because we've shifted compliance offshore um, and the advice piece we're driving out of the, the Sydney office, um, the, all the advice has been done. We've done the tax planning, with all the 30 June planning's been done. We're pretty much wound up now. Um, we're just doing a final few things and then come um, next week we hit the ground running and we start doing compliance. So. A lot of that work then shifts off to um, the Manila team and they'll start working through that workload and churning out the, the products that, um, that, that we need from a, a tax, tax return uh, annual accounts perspective. So because I know the quality that's going to come out the other end and what we do is steps, I can just go away and wait for the jobs to be completed. It will go through a manager sign-off internally and if I want to do some sampling, I can check sample jobs to make sure the quality is coming through as expected. But I don't have to get in there and do it. It's um, the team in Manila will drive it. Um, so previously we'd be frenzy in Australia trying to get all that done, but um, now we've we've moved that to Manila. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, and it's something that I see on a daily basis is that our clients are generally getting things under control, getting the capacity and getting sorted, and coming into peak periods of time where it is tax, whether that be in America or Canada or Australia, our firms or our clients are, are really calm and like you, going away for a couple of weeks, come back knowing that it's going to be, you know, managed and be able to dealt with. To all of the new firms that we're talking to and our, our sales team are talking to on a daily basis, they're in a frantic mess. They're <laughs> completely out of control and the and the main busy period's now just about to start, but yet they're too busy being busy from last year to even worry about what's just about to hit them in the face. So it's a real counterbalance between our clients that really, as they get through this journey like you are, have it under control. And while it is going to be a busy period, it's controllable to the majority of firms in the industry are still just in a frantic mess is the way that I look at it. Um, it's, it's quite interesting seeing the, the difference between the two. But Brad, we're going to talk a little bit more around average hourly rate or, or the profit. So obviously, it's not a driving reason to build an offshoring team, but has offshoring had a positive effect on your average hourly rate and the profit to your firm? Um, it, so when you say average hourly rate, are you talking about the rate that, that I'm charging my client? Well, the firm rate. So the average yeah. firm rate or, or even just yeah. if you don't measure average hourly rate, because I know that a lot of firms don't measure that in the industry, yeah. has it impacted your bottom line positively? Yeah, look, it has. Look, if, if you come back to... Um, 
return multiples. Um, I still use those, and I know some people think they're quite antiquated, but um, at, at the end of the day, that has a, as an underlying factor two of the rate. And if I'm getting, um, it depends also on the mix of work I give a team member. So obviously, if it's low in work, low value work, their um, their multiple conversion may be lower. So that's that's why I don't like um, because of the the price mix in the um, the portfolio of work you give a give a team member. It's a bit hard to actually target them on um, a, a rate, um, and also a multiple generic multiple for the whole firm is a bit hard. So um, I tend to have what I expect out of each person as a multiple in the background, but um, in terms of how that flows through to profitability, absolutely, it's been quite profound in terms of what that has done, and also takes away the stress if we actually have a job go bad because we've um, underestimated the amount of work or the or the issues or the errors and the information we've been getting. Sometimes we can suck it up and we can say to the client, "Look, this took us a whole day to do, not half a day." We might charge for it, we might not, depending on how big the client is and how we want to manage the relationship. But it doesn't become a big issue because, um, again, the cost of the resource um, providing the work is so much lower that um, we can maintain that quality. We can slip a bit on the um, on the hours and um, still maintain a high level of profitability. So it, it gives you more room to move, more room to manage relationships, less surprises for clients as in terms of out-of-scope bills of if um, either party have missed correctly scoping the uh, work up front. Um, so there is a, from my point of view, it's had a, a big improvement on morale, culture, and client satisfaction, and that's flowed through to profitability. So, you know, as I said, if you're getting six times multiple, that's quite um, a profound conversion um, from your underlying costs. Once you've set it up and you're not actually spending much time on it, it just runs itself. So it's a pure six times multiple. Which is pretty, pretty high. Yeah. yeah, no, that is great. So I'm going to ask you a bit of business advice. What one bit of advice would you give your younger self from a business point of view? Yeah, so I suppose um, something that caught me out in the younger days was um, I stuck my head down and I went a million miles an hour at growing the business. Well, what I didn't do was um, develop the foundations. So put the foundations in place around workflow systems process and procedures, um, I did that midway through and um, that probably caused me more grief than, um, than, it, than it should have because if I'd done that up front when I actually had the um, headroom to be able to develop it properly, it would have um, transpired to some larger positive outcomes for the business later on. Um, we're still developing as we get going. As, as I said last week, we're still working on process and procedures and we've got a long way to go. So it takes, a, it takes a long time to develop those procedures and there are um, services out there in the marketplace where you can subscribe and access process and procedure pools, um, documentation templates. So it's definitely worth in the earlier days getting your hands on as much of that as you can and really putting a big focus around, you know, defining how a job starts and ends, what templates you need in, in between to speed that job up. So. I'll give you an idea. Um, every email that my team sends, I actually email clients. They have a portfolio of email templates they use to um, send an email to a client. So it's constantly developing those templates, those portfolios um, of tools and resources for the team to um, utilise to speed up their process, but also maintain a high level of professional look and feel. So, you know, advice to my younger self, 
I should have started that a long time ago. I've left it. I've left it to now, and my work-life balance probably would have been sorted out two years ago if I got onto that earlier. Um, yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. Great advice. So I'm going to ask you something from a personal point of view. What bit of advice would you give yourself from a personal point of view? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure about the answer to that. Would one. you have jumped into um, business earlier? Would you? I mean. Is there anything you would have done differently to, to what you do now? No, I don't think so. Um, Work-life work balance obviously is important from a, um, um, a family perspective, keeping the family happy, making sure you're not um, absent the whole time. I suppose the business and the personal become a function of each other. If, if um, some of that advice I, I would have given myself as a, a younger me um, happened sooner, then um, potentially work-life balance would have been um, higher at a, an earlier phase of the um, business life cycle, that that would have flowed on and been better for from a family perspective. So, look, um, to me they're kind of the same, and I think um, the, the the aim is to get to work life balance as soon as you can because it's possible. But you have to build the foundations before you can, you know, take your hands away off the steering wheel and sit back and and, and watch it from a distance. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Don't disagree. So what's the biggest myth or objection you've heard about having an offshore team and is it true? Um, look, I've, I've heard um, the, the biggest myth I've, I've heard is that if you want to go offshore, it's best to only give those resources repetitive tasks which um, build on the same routine. And, for example, filling out the same form 20 times a day I don't, I don't entirely agree with that because um, if, if you don't want to engage your staff and you don't want to um, make them a part of your local business, then possibly that's the way you need to go because if you don't engage your staff and bring them on as a productive contributing team member, they're going to be demotivated and they're not going to be engaged. So if that's the case, then yes, um, stick them into um, filling out forms every day. But I think you could, they're going to get bored, there's going to be errors, they're going to leave after a certain amount of time because they are totally bored with what they're doing. Um, I see that happening. So I actually see that in real life happening where people are treating their staff that way. But I don't think that actually gets anywhere near the productivity out of the member um, that you could get. Um, and also higher level staff have been used for those lower level duties. Now, again, those people get, um, you know, they get um, bored with the job, they get demotivated. Um, and they eventually leave. So it causes more problems than it actually um, rectifies. Um, I, I suppose um, from that point of view, that's one of the biggest myths that I hear. And I think it's the, the, the person engaging the Filipino member who's at fault. Because if you actually drive that person and you actually develop them, as, as I've said previously in this, this podcast, they will become a highly productive and contributing team member like the staff you've got in your own office. If you're not going to do that, I probably wouldn't even um, bother engaging an offshore staff member to start with. I'd do it locally because you're going to get higher control and higher quality of input if it's just admin, just get an admin assistant to do it. So that's the, biggest myth, more. <laughs> that's the biggest myth I hear. And I just, you know, I hear my own team just telling me stories and I go, really? Is that how they're being managed? So I, I don't, I think the myth actually and the objection to it really is if you're not going to do it properly don't don't bother yeah it's great advice yeah. 
So for someone looking to grow their business um, and or team, whether it be local or global, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever heard and implemented that you could pass on? I'm just having a think. So it's an interesting question. So I suppose the, um, the biggest piece of advice is um, start slow. Bring on, bring on a, um, a team member and develop them through what we've talked about previously around process procedures, about engagement, clearly identifying their performance requirements. But also, um, look, I'm a big believer on there being two team members, not one. It's important if they're just sitting there by themselves and they're not being engaged enough, they're, they're fairly isolated, they're by themselves and they haven't got a colleague to work with face-to-face -face, uh, who's working on the same business. So I'm a big believer on there being at least two people in the offshore team that work together and collaborate, cross-train, back each other up when they're on leave because they're face-to-face -face and they can train each other better than you can remotely. So if I was going to, um, you know, the best advice I could give to someone is start slow and make sure you focus on your systems, your processes and procedures and ensure that you provide a high level of engagement. Go, go meet them up front, um, develop that relationship, um, work on training them up specifically in some targeted areas um, and then focus to quite quickly after that, bring on a second team member so they can work in a pair and a team, work on bringing them together in terms of um, working on similar projects. Because I did find initially that the two team members I had would sit in their um, cubicles and they wouldn't even talk and they would just um, do their own work, come and leave each day and, and not engage each other. So then you've got to pull them together as a, a team and really drive that kind of relationship um, between the offshore team and back into the Australian team. So learning curve for me that would have been um, useful if I'd gotten onto that a bit earlier because it, it's something that I was kind of, um, you know, I, it's something I didn't expect. Um, I thought they would have just naturally gravitated to be the, um, but it, it's not so, you need to bring it together. So now they go out to lunch together, they socialise on weekends together, they're all good friends. And that kind of um, team spirit, um, you know, produces considerably um, powerful outcomes, I think, in your office. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. So, Brad, we're going to finish off um, with a quick five in five. So, mm -hmm. quick few questions. What cloud software does your firm use? I know that you're a very tech savvy firm. So, what are the main softwares that you use? Yeah, that's a hard one because um, I, I think I sent you a list, Nick. I've got 25 of them. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's a solid number yeah, of I, ones that you use. Yeah. It's way too many. And look, at the moment, my core, um, my core suite is practice ignition, zero practice. We use Insightly CRM. We use Receipt Bank. Uh, what else? Box.com for storage. Um, and better scheduling, um, which ships over zero practice, which is, is like a, um, a, an Outlook or a diary type representation of um, the tasks across the team. So you can actually manu uh, manage capacity planning quite easily. You can do it from your phone. If you're on the go, you can do it on your computer. So it's quite an easy drag and drop type method to rescheduling work and managing capacity planning. So that's that's the core um, list of products that we've, um, software products that we use. Um, as I said, we've got Ted Benny in the background and we're actually tomorrow I'm kicking off a discovery project with an outsourced team and um, that 2024, there's actually more more than that around the edges, but there's um, we want to get them right back down to a small handful. I'd like it to be eight if I could get it back that way. So 
a lot of the functions in those software peripheral packages that we use are going to be sucked into one platform, which is going to be a CRM. It's going to be potentially replacing zero practice, potentially. And it's going to integrate um, customer um, data management quality around content um, co contact details, um, supporting marketing. Um, so there's a lot of areas where um, technology kind of gets away from you a bit. It works. It works well. It all integrates and runs quite well. The team engages it very well across the board. Um, I just think it can be, you know, we've come so far so quickly as a, um, as a, a global industry but the technology's moved faster than the integration has. And um, the next stage is to really bring it back to basics and um, do that final cleanup and polishing and refinement of that cloud-based solution. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the result of that. <laughs> I'll send it through to you if you have a look at what it's done. Yeah, no, that's excellent. So out of all the apps that you do use, Brad, what is your favorite app? Yeah, look, um, it's called Better Scheduling. So it's a guy in Canberra, he's a one-man band, he's developed this, um, it works through G Suite and it plugs into Zero Practice. As I said, um, there's so many things wrong with Zero Practice in terms of how you manage capacity around your team, how you can visualise staff and manager level um, um, bottlenecks and resource limits. Um, this, pro this saves all those issues for me, it, it resolves those issues and it sits over the top and it just talks and pushes information back into one zero practice and and manages my scheduling for me. So that's that's my favorite app. That um, helps me manage my team day to day. And as I said, I can do it on my phone, I can do it on the move, I can do it on the plane, flying to Manila. So, you know, that's <clears throat> that's something which um, has um, made the whole thing workable because it's just very, very hard if you just work in workflow max only and you don't have these extra tools to help you. So that's my favorite. Love it. So what is your must-read each week? Right. Um, look, I just um, – I'm, I'm so busy, I just leverage knowledge shop. Um, as I said, I used to use GPS change. That was good. It was different. Now I'm using knowledge shop. I just read the questions and answers that come into the help desk each week. They provide me updates, technical updates. So in terms of what I read each week, I just read the knowledge shop help desk questions and answers. There's a wealth of information in there that's quite helpful. Keeps you up to date. And um, it's traditionally a problem that you have as well, that someone else is asking. So it's a new challenge, it's a new problem, it's a new change that someone's asked for information about and keeps you up to date. So Knowledge Shop um, helps me. Excellent. Your favourite social media channel? I don't have one. In terms of social media, I, I don't really use them. Even though we're high on the tech side, I steer away from Facebook, from Twitter, from all those platforms. I suppose I'm still a bit old school on that level. And I predominantly just focus on website SEO and the old referral mechanisms between me and, and my referral partners and, and their clients. So I kind of steer away from it. It's not a bad thing. So your favorite KPI, what is your favorite KPI? Uh, favorite KPI is actual hours versus expected hours by staff members. Um, um, or staff wages to fee generation. So they're, they're my favourite financial KPIs. Um, the non-financial is, you know, I've harped on this before, but I'm a massive believer in staff happiness and motivation. If staff are part of your business, they're in for the ride, they work hard, they're committed, then throwing as much as you can at them to make them happy and, and really engaged 
to me is a very important um, KPI for me, a non-financial KPI. So if they're happy, to me, everything else seems to come together and work well. Um, if they're not happy, mistakes happen, productivity drops, all those other areas, those financial areas are irrelevant because um, they don't work. So they're my two, two key KPI sets. Yeah, love it, love it. So Brad, so much insight today. So really appreciate your time um, that you've given us and our listeners to be able to learn from what you've learnt over your four-year journey. We'll put your contact details in the show notes, but what's the one best way for anyone to reach out to you if they did want to get in contact with you? Uh, probably email. I am on LinkedIn, but I, I rarely check it. So they just want to email me if they've got any questions, more than happy to, to help out. And um, yeah, probably email would be the best. Excellent. So that's now the end of it. That was awesome. We have gone a little bit over time, but um, mate, really appreciate all your insights because there's plenty of it in there. You've obviously you're doing it right. I can tell you now, you're one of our one of our clients that are that that gets it and makes it work. Mate, really appreciate your time today and everything that you've um, covered because there was so much in it. And um, hopefully, I look forward to catching up to you in August at the roadshow. Um, Sounds good, mate. I'll send you the stuff that that would. I'm I'm so pumped with um, what we're starting to work on tomorrow. It's just yeah, that sounds mind. really interesting. I when you mentioned that on the webinar, it was. I've had probably five, ten clients come back to me saying, <laughs> "What is it? Can we can we learn more about it?" So look, if yeah. you can nail that, I think there's a market then to to basically then um, recover some of your costs by getting it across to other people. Yeah, no, it sounds well. The the people that are doing it for me because I'm the first one in Australia that's doing it. They're they're doing a lot of the integration for free. Yeah, well, as, a, awesome. as a test case to actually show others. So yeah, it's interesting. We'll see how the um the 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 optical um character recognition stuff works because um that's a game changer as well. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Look forward to hearing more about it. But um, mate, I better let you go. Really appreciate you doing this, particularly when you're not well. And have a good holiday in a few weeks. And um, look forward to catching up to, with you in the um, roadshow in August. No worries, Nick. Speak soon. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Cheers. To follow our podcast and get insights from leading accountants, simply visit theoutsourcedaccountant.com or visit iTunes or SourCloud and head to the Offshore Accountant Podcast. To connect with me personally, just look for my Twitter handle at Nick Q Sinclair or find me on LinkedIn at Nick Sinclair. Thanks and have a great day.